sleep is confusing. Dreams are baffling. The concept of transitioning from one perceived reality to another is a tolerated madness. Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner, welcome to Night Vale. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Devin. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the lighter side of horror, everything from jump scares to punchlines when we discuss comedic horror. This episode of Books in the Freezer is brought to you by Audible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without audiobooks. So if you want some spooky stories told by some familiar voices, try Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, read by Dexter's Michael C. Hall, or The Dead Zone, read by James Franco, or podcast favorite, Joe Hill's Nosferatu, read by Kate Mulgrew. For a free audiobook and 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com slash books in the freezer. Happy listening. So you might think, looking at these two genres, you got horror, you got comedy, Mm -hmm. one meant to absolutely terrify you, and the other one, more of, you know, chuckles and amusement and, and, and joy, for the most part. You would think these are polar opposites. So... Clearly, they're not, since we are discussing our comedic horror subgenre today. What do you think, Steph, it is that makes them a good pair? I think one of the things is the way both genres are set up, and that I think there are rules. You know, there's kind of rules to a way a punchline is set up in a movie scene where the audience expects it and knows what's coming, much like when everything lines up for a good scare in a horror movie scene. And I think when we put these together, we kind of get a little bit of a subversion of that. But I think probably at its most base, these are two genres that elicit a physical response from its audience. You know, whether it's laughing at something you see or some kind of a physical freak out, whether it's cringing or hiding your eyes or screaming. These are things that you are reacting to what you are seeing in a physical way. Right. Like a good comedy, will you'll get that belly laugh and you, you can physically see it on the face. Horror can literally jump you out of your seat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. The way I look at it, they are perfect complements to each other. Two genres, I think, more than any other is subjective to the person watching it. You tend to find with, say, say, romance, drama, action. A lot of it, you know, an action movie for one person is an action movie for another. They have a broader appeal. Yeah, yeah. And with, with horror, ten people can watch the same horror movie. One can say it was the greatest I've ever seen. One can say it's absolute, you know, laughable. And same with comedy. Different people will have different responses to certain comedy, certain horror. And it really boils down to the person itself, which makes these books, films, TV shows... Um, all all the mediums of storytelling, it makes it, I think, more difficult. Not everyone's going to be scared by the same thing and not everyone's going to laugh at the same show. There are friends I know that are absolutely horrified to even talk about It and Pennywise because it's a clown. <laughs> 
Like, the fact that it's a clown, they're like, nope, 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 I want nothing to do with this. But then there's others be like, oh my god, Tim Curry is hilarious. See, this is, you're gonna laugh. That's how I am with anything involving evil dolls. Okay, yeah, no, no, I can see that. (laughs) I'm like, I still to this day have never seen any of the, like, Child's Play movies, even though I feel like they, like, today I would think, like, it's kind of cheesy, but because of my, like, deep-seated fear (laughs) of dolls, I will not watch it. I have not seen Annabelle. Like, I do not do evil dolls. <laughs> Child's Play 1 still holds up to this day as not cheesy. Does it? Yes. I really, really advocate watching that. But not if you're that terrified of the of the topic. So. Oh, my gosh. My grandma had a room in her house that was just porcelain dolls on these floating shelves. And that was the room I had to sleep in when we stayed at my grandma's house. Eesh. No wonder you got into horror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would sleep with the light on. Like, I just, I hate dolls. <laughs> Well, I mean, you got your, you got your Charles Lee Ray, your Chucky, but yeah. then you also got like your Slappy from Goosebumps. Oh yeah, that was scary too. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, but I read it when I was in the third grade. <laughs> okay, I guess. I guess. Oh man, and then talking Tina from the Twilight Zone. You know what? We should save this for our like doll episode that we'll do probably. That's a good idea. Oh, but something I did want to mention, going back to the physical responses that we get from watching horror and comedy was something I found in a Vulture article from 2014 that I will quote right now. So it said, in a paper on the functions of humor, Dr. Julia Wilkins calls this phenomenon relief theory. According to her article, we achieve such joy from being scared in certain situations because while our bodies tell us that they're dangerous, we still know deep down that we are safe and this release of tension results in laughter. This is why comedy and horror go hand in hand, both in literature and on film. Both genres have their own sets of rules for achieving their intended goals, and by combining the rules of comedy and horror, one genre can greatly enhance the other. Has that ever happened to you where you've been like so scared you laugh? Well, this is going to sound like me being macho, but but no. Um, I, I can probably count on one hand how many times I've actually ever really been scared in my life. It's kind of why I got into horror to begin with. It's kind of the, uh, the search for that kind of uh sensation i guess i would say like that's happened to me in high school going through like haunted houses and like coming at the end and just being like (laughs) it's all good it's done now (laughs) oh my god i can picture that wow oh yeah we used to go to one and then at like when you came out of the haunted house at the very end someone chased you with a chainsaw so you were like running out of there but i think like we also see that in movies right like when characters you see them go through something very traumatic, and then at the end, they just, like, explode into this maniacal laughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's relief theory. And I, I don't disagree with it. I mean, that's, that's certainly a, a thing that happens. Um, you know, logically, that you are not in any danger. So the fact that something is able to scare you, can I, I can get that. Um, I think to add to it, though... What I think the main reason why the genres do complement each other and bring them together, as uh, Dr. Wilkins said, can greatly enhance the the other, mm-hmm. is that I think the, the best horror is the ones that have that bit of brevity in the middle to break the tension. Because if it's pure tension the whole way through, a lot of the times uh, you can get the, the audience or the reader being fatigued by the end because they're just constantly, constantly, constantly in this tense state. Yeah, You need to have that release so that you can build up more tension. Eventually, you will hit a point of just they are as tense as they're going to get. And if your book is 
you know, you're only a third of the way through, then it, it doesn't go anywhere from there. So you have that moment to like release it and then build it, then release it, then build it. And then when you have that big payoff, it's so much more impactful because the reader f- legitimately feels like they've gone up and down, up and down, up and down the whole way through. Yeah. Definitely. Like when you have a, a director or an author that really knows what they're doing and is really looking for ways to maximize that. Yeah, the an example of that, mm-hmm. and it's going to be of no surprise to anybody that I'm going to talk about him, is My Best Friend's Exorcism with Grady Hendrix. Yeah. I think that's a great intro to anybody trying to get into the horror genre. And I think it's done in such a way that it is a scary book. Like, this is a scary story. Mm-hmm. Um, even people that read a lot of horror can admit that it is scary. It has a lot of comedy and a lot of break in the tension um, that gets you through it, and it makes it feel like an enjoyable like trip that you're on. It may le- lean a little too much to the comedy side, but the scares are there, the um, the anxiety that it would build is there, and through the comedy, it allows you to not feel exhausted getting through it. So you could sit down and, and read My Best Friend's Exorcism in, in a single sitting, really, or at least I found I could. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's that's a miracle. Listeners, you will be proud of us. Neither of us picked a Grady Hendrix book as one of our picks. So <laughs> I was going to. I was so going to. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I decided not to. That's why I had to mention him. Yeah. Here. I mean, you have to. You have to mention him for the bingo card. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. Yes, for the bingo card. But in all seriousness, though, I do think that Hendrix is actually one of the best comedy horror writers yeah. that I've read recently. So I feel that I, this episode would be remiss not to at least mention that because that's where my head is that way. Yeah, well, I mean, it takes a lot because you have to be someone who is an expert in both genres to be able to do both because a lot of it is kind of the subversion of tropes. So you have to be familiar with those tropes and those rules. Exactly. You need to know what the rules are in order to break them. And I think Grady does a really good job with both the comedy side and the horror side. Definitely. One thing that I thought of uh, in that quote, like with both genres having their set of rules and combining the rules of one to enhance the other was the scene in Scream where Randy's going over all of the rules that everyone needs to survive a slasher movie. So it ups the tension because we, you know, the audience have an expectation, but it also adds a little bit of comedy, I thought, throughout. Like when he goes and he's like, I'll be right back. Crap. I was totally about to tell you, oh, Steph, hold on. I got to go get a drink. I'll be right back. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry for messing up the punchline. <laughs> Subversion of expectations. Yep. <laughs> Although it's not Randy that says that, right? It's Stu. Um, I think mentioning Scream and the rules for Scream is actually perfect for what we're talking about here. Because in terms of film, Scream... I think is the one that apps is one of these films that absolutely changed the way uh, self-aware and comedic horror like became for the next 20 years after the fact, Mm -hmm. like it became this meta again, self-aware practically fourth wall breaking kind of um, humor that you find all over the place now. And, but another thing that I think both genres do well is I think that they're both good vehicles to make statements about the state of society Comedy, I think, because it reminds me of that saying, like the fool in the king's court being the only one that can really tell the truth and get away with it. Right. I see as the comedy genre. But horror, as we've seen even recently, is really great to tackle issues and make statements. You have movies like Get Out tackling complex racial issues. You have classics like The Stepford Wives tackling like misogyny and like second wave feminism and Dawn of the Dead and consumerism. 
And I just think both of those, because they're good at that, also work well together uh, to point out things. Like some of the movies we're going to talk about are in specific subgenres, so they can also laugh at the usual tropes that would be found within that subgenre, like Scream for slasher movies. Yeah. Well, I mean, and once again, talking about how comedy and horror are very similar in their approach to things, it's the same thing. They are, are vehicles for making these kind of, of, of statements, as you said. Horror uses them very, again, in a shock value, oh my god, this is real kind of thing. Like, again, you have your Dawn of the Dead zombie apocalypse, you have the Step Rip Wives. Comedy does the same thing, but it pokes fun at, like, parody, satire. Uh, but they're both very often used to... Um, to make these statements and it's like uh dr blumberg said on our uh, zombie episodes talked about how the zombie apocalypse itself kind of trope tends to flourish during certain times of society like when society is kind of like on a downward incline mm-hmm. you find the rise of like zombies and things like this i think comedy and horror are two genres that perfectly um reflect the type of world that we're living in at the time more so than say the action or the dramatic ones mm-hmm. So before we get on to talking about books, do you know of any movies that do this, like blending comedy with horror? Nope, not a one. No, I didn't think so either. No. Let's move on to the books. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> there, there's tons, and listeners, I'm sure, are already rhyming off Shaun of the Dead. Like, that's that's like the given one. You say comedy horror, you're thinking British guy with a cricket paddle. The comedy movies are as varied as their, the independent genres themselves, because... You can have a comedy movie that has horror elements or a horror film with comedic elements. Um, For example, What We Do in the Shadows. Mm -hmm. That's one that is a comedy first with, you know, horror tropes. Yes. Whereas you have something like The Evil Dead. Evil Dead is a hilarious movie that has a lot of one-liners people quote, but that is still a horror movie first and foremost. But that's one where um, Ash Williams, played by Bruce Campbell... His mannerisms and what goes on is funny, but the atmosphere is still horrific. A perfect, perfect, perfect example of what I'm talking about, how there's comedic horror and then there's horror comedy, is the Gremlins series. Because if you watch the original Gremlins, it's a Christmas movie, and they are very menacing. They're still funny. It's kind of scary, but with, you know, funny, quirky moments. But then you go to Gremlins 2... It's all of a sudden a comedy movie that has these creatures. Like, because I know Steph hasn't seen Gremlins. Wow, way to sneak that shot in there. Just wow. <laughs> so, just go on. Go I just, on. I just, I just want to point this out. <laughs> that, okay, the way Gremlins work, you have uh, Gizmo, the little furry dude. And there are certain rules you have to follow when you raise it. When you raise a mogwai, which is what Gizmo is. You can't get them wet. You can't feed them after midnight, and you can't put them in direct light. Um, If you feed them after midnight, then they actually transform into those gremlins. In the second Gremlins movie, when the main character is, like, trying to go to these people in the security room that got the security cameras and say what's going on, and he tells them the rules, they ask him, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, but what if you were on a plane and you were changing time zones? Would that, when would midnight be then? Like... Mm -hmm. They were poking fun at their own rules within the actual movie itself. So that is more of a satire, more of a parody. So it's a comedy within a horror. And then we have one of my favorites, Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Which pokes fun at the usual, you know, 
teens or young adults spending a weekend in a secluded cabin and then i would say like the order and the character archetypes that we see in slasher movies cabin in the woods is a a a good mirror i guess to what scream Mm -hmm. did for that kind of filmmaking taking the actual tropes themselves and putting them up on on a spotlight and kind of poking fun at them. You have the Cenobites, you have Mermen, you have um, the Hills of Eyes, kind of mutant family, you have zombie. All those things are in the cabin in the woods. Mm-hmm. You also have the option for witches or sexy witches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and um, just the way that whole story is framed is funny watching it on the outside. But when, if you really think about what happens in that movie, it's a really good horror movie. One of my personal favorites is Trick or Treat. Yeah. That's an amazing movie where it's definitely a horror film that has funny moments. It's an anthology. I have seen this one, so go on. (laughs) Sam is one of my favorite monsters of recent times, of contemporary monsters. But yeah, if if you are interested in comedic horror um, and you haven't seen any whatsoever, then the ones I'll recommend is Trick or Treat. And for Steph to go back and watch Gremlins. And I'm saying, check out what we do in the shadows and Cabin in the Woods. But this is a horror fiction podcast, so they don't come to hear us talk about movies. So yeah, stop talking about movies, Devin. Let's talk about books. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about some books. So the first book I wanted to talk about is Popular Hits of the Showa Era by Ryu Murakami. My copy is translated by Ralph McCarthy from the Japanese. And this is about two groups of people in Japan. It's a group of six young men who are just kind of aimless and also a group of six middle-aged divorced women who call themselves the Midoris because it's a name that they all share, but they're referred to by the other group as the aunties. So both groups are living in a state of kind of, like I said, aimlessness, where they spend their time doing karaoke and talking, but really not listening to each other. They just kind of are directionless and just kind of live from day to day. Um, But inexplicably, one of the um, young men from the group murders one of the Midoris, like slashes her throat in the middle of a street, and he incites a escalating kind of gang war between the groups. <laughs> and so they start this revenge mission where both groups start plotting and planning to kill members from the other group off. But since these groups finally have like a purpose and a mission, it brings them close together. And like they finally start like listening to each other and they like become closer as a group. So. This is like a black comedy. It is very satirical. Um, I mean, a lot of this is a satire based on like a Japanese culture. So like I didn't understand like every single statement that Murakami was trying to make. But a lot of it was about the way that the two generations relate to each other and the different genders relate to each other. Um, and a lot about Japanese society. But it was kind of funny just to see this like gang war between like young men and middle-aged women that are just like plotting revenge on each other. And it just keeps like escalating and escalating until it reaches just a ridiculously huge conclusion. Um, so this is a little a little nihilistic. I mean, characters often muse that murder is the only thing that gives life meaning. Uh, it's very violent and gritty, like very gory. Uh, There's a lot of karaoke in it, so that's there to balance that out. So that is Popular Hits of the Showa Era 
by Ryu Murakami. Okay. Uh, Ryu Murakami, he did Audition as well? Yes, he did. Um, Audition is one that me and Steph and a friend of the show, uh, Sean, read as a buddy read and were very um, whelmed by it. Whelmed? I wouldn't say under or overwhelmed. <laughs> we were whelmed. At least I was. I was whelmed. Um, I think the expectations going into it was a little off, and that's kind of suffered for it. But it sounds like this one's <laughs> a lot more interesting. It's just, like, so crazy at times. <laughs> like, I think at points you read it and you're like, what is happening? Which is, like, the best yeah. way to be, yeah. Especially for this particular uh, genre. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Maybe I'll give a good old Ryu another shot. So I would put this in the fridge there's not a lot of moments where there's like a lot of tension where you're dreading what's gonna happen i mean you hear the groups kind of plotting to do what they're gonna do so i would say as far as like feeling dread i don't feel a lot of dread but i'm i'm putting it in the fridge because of the bloodiness okay so, not for everyone that, that is fair speaking of not for everyone oh boy <laughs> <laughs> what a transition here we go <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> My first pick, I really enjoyed, otherwise I wouldn't pick it, but I will preface it by saying that this is a book that you at least have to be open to the idea of liking professional wrestling to enjoy. (laughs) My first pick is called Turning Face by Terry West. Turning Face is the story of Tojo Smith, who was born on Eden, which is Earth, born of two demons that were just residing on Earth. And he grew up and became a professional wrestler, a heel, um, which in professional wrestling terms is a bad guy. Heel's a bad guy, face is a good guy. Um, And he became a professional wrestler as a heel. And the way this works is demons, even ones that were born on Eden, um, are required by hell to basically elicit hate in the world. And that's like their, their sole reason for being if they don't do that they get called back to hell kind of thing so he his route was to be a bad guy wrestler um which was great he's he's been doing it for 30 odd years but the problem is he's becoming very popular with the fans and the promoter wants to turn him face make him a good guy and that will get him in a lot of trouble with hell so (laughs) that is the premise of this story and it was glorious (laughs) I have been a wrestling fan for longer than I can remember, actually. I One of my earliest memories, besides watching Friday the 13th, was watching Hulk Hogan versus Macho Man at WrestleMania Five. So I will preface it by saying that they use a lot of you know inside baseball terms in this like heel jobber work shoot like wrestling terms that you know you kind of got to be a wrestling fan to know what it is but you can still appreciate the story without knowing these things um it's a very very short story uh the audiobook is a little over two hours long again when it comes to comedy and horror i think me personally it usually boils down to the character the main character specifically is usually the make or break kind of um, aspect of it and tojo smith is i found a really compelling character it's not so much a lot of laughs it's more the premise itself and what's going on around is the funny part so there's not a lot of comedy haha moments Mm -hmm. but it's just an enjoyable story in a very um you know bite-sized kind of uh package so yeah even if you used to watch wrestling and you would like to and just vaguely recall enjoying this kind of thing i would definitely recommend picking this one up so do you think my having watched two seasons of glow has given me enough background to understand what's going on honestly probably okay 
because although I didn't watch Glow, I love Glow. Um, I'm pretty sure Glow follows the wrestlers inside and out of the ring. Mm-hmm. So you probably did hear a lot of terms um, about like just putting on a show, putting on work, and and stuff like that in the show. So yes, watching Glow is enough. Okay, that 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 will do All it. Right. But like I said, just the idea that he's he's this character is going from a bad guy to a good guy, and hell is literally, you know, coming down on him for it. It's oh yeah, I uh, I had I had a lot of fun with this one. Temperature is definitely room temperature. Um, there's other than the climax, there isn't really a lot that's going to make you jump in a horror terms it's it's almost more comedy than horror but because of the subject matter i wouldn't say it fits that way but yeah definitely room temperature that was uh, turning face a tale of horror comedy and wrestling by terry west interesting all right my next pick is johannes cabal the necromancer by Jonathan Howard. So this is a Faustian bargain comedy. Uh, Johannes Cabal sold his soul uh, to Satan in exchange for necromancy powers. Uh, But in the beginning of the novel, we see him making his way to hell again to negotiate with Satan to get his soul back because actually he kind of needs it for his necromancy powers to work. Satan proposes that if he gets 100 people to sign over their soul in a year's time, with the help of a traveling carnival that he's loaning him, he will give him his soul back. But if he does not get all of these souls signed over, Cabal himself will be damned for good. So Cabal sets out with this goal and a crew that he's mostly raised from the dead. And that also includes his brother, Horst, who is a vampire. But Cabal needs him because he has a lot more people skills than Johannes does. This is more like I would say probably my kind of humor the most. It's very dry, <laughs> like very dry British humor. And there was a lot of parts that felt kind of like Monty Python like in the beginning there's a scene where he um, summons a demon and the demon's like you don't even have like the right candles like this isn't even right like do you even have this and he's like I have like half a flask and he's like ah good enough (laughs) you know like they just have this exchange that goes back and forth and he's like is that is there even blood of a virgin here But what I liked about it is that it was a well thought out, clever story with funny characters. Like it wasn't, I felt like that's where the focus was and that the comedy was second. And it was still there and it still worked, but we still got these well-rounded characters and we got a well-executed plot. So I don't think the characters or the plot suffered for the sake of the comedy. Um, I just felt like all of the parts worked well together. Like it wasn't something where things just happened for a punchline. It was just a very well-constructed story. And this is actually the start of the of a whole series. Oh. And uh, uh, Jonathan Howard is the author of another series, too, called the Carter and Lovecraft series, where I think it's like Lovecraftian detective horror stories. That sounds compelling. Yeah, I'm like, I knew you would be interested in that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, now you got my attention. Not to say you didn't before, but now you definitely <laughs> have my attention. Oh, man. But I loved this. I listened to this on audio, which I recommend because... It's a very British story, so it has a British narrator, which I think you need. I think it enhances the comedy at some points. But I would say this is room temperature. Like I said, it's very dry humor, and it is mostly like the running of this carnival and getting people to sign this, sign their souls over, and just kind of like the ins and outs of how that works. Um, But very funny. I thought very well written. Very enjoyable. Totally recommend. So that is Johannes Cabal, The Necromancer by Jonathan Howard. 
It, it wasn't read by John Cleese, was it? No, that would have been great. Uh, okay. <laughs> missed opportunity. <laughs> Speaking of missed opportunities, um, okay, no, that's a horrible one. I was like, what? <laughs> Actually, my second pick is not completely independent of yours. Okay. Um, it does involve souls. All right. <laughs> sort of. My next pick is a novel by Christopher Moore, who is the author that came up more than anyone else by far. When I searched out comedic horror. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, he seems, I, I don't know much about him, but he seems to be, like, comedy horror is, like, his niche. So, I picked up one of his books, and I picked up one called A Dirty Job. A Dirty Job follows Charlie Asher, our main character, who is self-described as a beta male. And that is a term and definition you hear a lot in that book. They go into those analogies all the time when describing his personality and such charlie is a normal guy um very passive again very quote-unquote beta male the opening of the book is uh, his wife giving birth to their daughter and him av- having an absolute neurotic just spasm of nerves like worried about everything complaining about everything upset about everything and um his wife passes away um, in the midst of his wife passing away, he notices there's this guy in the room with him that no one else can see, and that's your opening. Um, it turns out that Charlie has actually uh, become death, or one of them. Like this isn't a world where there's a grim reaper. It's like it's kind of like supernatural where there's a bunch of quote unquote reapers. Okay. Um, so he is he's become death. It takes him about ten chapters of the book to learn this fact. <laughs> So he is just stumbling around, seeing objects glowing bright red and thinking they're radioactive, not knowing that it it is part of what his new role is. And yeah, it's a bumbling protagonist in a position where he's in well over his head. While reading it, I was a little nervous because I got more than halfway through it before I started wondering of, oh no, is this just a comedy novel? It just involves a character being death. But then a uh, an underlying plot starts to develop, and then it, it really gets into it. So this is a horror novel, um, but I don't want to go too much into those details because, like I said, that's deep into the novel, and that'd be kind of spoilery. Mm. So, like I said, it's it's worth picking up just for Charlie and his um, neurotic kind of tendencies. I think personally, some of the humor might not rubs people the right way. Like I said, the, just the term "beta male" itself is uh, kind of hit and miss with people in terms of, oh, can you put that in a comedy or is that offensive kind of thing? But um, I didn't get that vibe from here. It was all pretty, pretty wholesome and innocent of sorts, and the the jokes were funny. Uh, when it got serious, it was really well written horror. So. Yeah, I think uh, if Christopher Moore is this comedic horror guy, he this was a good introduction. So um, I would say, if not for the second half of the book, I would say it was easily a room temperature book. But I might think about putting it in the fridge for a few minutes based on where the story ends up going. Um, but it's, I think I say this rating a lot, but it's somewhere somewhere in between. If I had, if you gun to my head, I had to pick a rating. I would probably say room temperature, but you know, a, a winter's day with no heat on in your home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like I like that's these creative what... ratings. <laughs> if on a winter's day you happen to. Yeah, winter day, window open, no heat on, room temp. That room's temperature. 
But yeah, that was uh, A Dirty Job by Christopher Moore. Interesting. And yeah, he was definitely the author I saw pop up the most. He seems to be prolific in the horror comedy genre. Yeah, he it, there's, he popped up so often that I wasn't going to read a book by him. Um, but then I saw you didn't, so I'm like, okay, maybe one of us should check him. <laughs> My last pick is Welcome to Night Vale by Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner. Yeah. I know this one. I, that's, that sounds like a podcast I listen to. <laughs> it definitely is. It's based on the podcast. It's written by the same people that do the podcast. And if you're going to pick this up, I... I just re- I really recommend doing the audio version. You know, it's it's read by um, the voice of Cecil Baldwin. The basic plot of this follows a pawn shop owner named Jackie Fierro and PTA treasurer Diane Creighton and her shape shifting son Josh. The issue is that Diane has started to see her son's father inexplicably just everywhere around town, and Jackie is given a piece of paper that says King City by a mysterious man in a tan suit and a deerskin suitcase. I would really recommend this mostly for fans of the podcast because there's a lot of returning gags and characters like John Peters, you know, the farmer, <laughs> the faceless woman that lives in your house, uh, Night Vale radio host Cecil Baldwin, and his boyfriend Carlos, and the sheriff's secret police. And I also was excited that a lot of things are expounded upon. Like in the Night Vale podcast, there is that mysterious man in a tan suit in a deerskin suitcase, but everyone that interacts with him can't remember anything about him. Like no one can remember his name or what he looks like. And we get more background on him in the book. Um, And we actually get a scene inside the Night Vale public library. (laughs) Because in the... In the podcast, I know, like, we hear a lot about it and we get the whole, like, Tamika Flynn thing. We get a lot of stuff, but there's not a lot of scenes where we are, like, in the library that we hear so much about. So that was a lot of fun. Um, I would say if you're not a fan of the podcast, I'm going to say I don't know how enjoyable this would be because uh, the plot is very light and it is very punchline heavy. But if you are a fan of the podcast and you just love the writing and you just want to be read to in that beautiful voice and you like these like funny jokes every now and then you're gonna enjoy yourself question sure is there any Hiram McDaniels no I didn't no no No. the 18 foot tall five-headed dragon (laughs) I mean there's there's another uh there's more welcome to Night Vale books so he might make an appearance in the other ones (laughs) all right it devours I think is the second one but no I I haven't read this book but I clearly have listened to Night Vale, and I'm assuming it's the same kind of narrative, same kind of story. So, um, yeah, Night Vale is very, if you haven't listened to it, is a very surreal kind of um, storytelling where it's on its, just listening to a single episode of Night Vale, it's like there's so much just random things happening. But when you watch it over a period of time, you see that they're all intertwined and connected in really obscure and kind of um, abstract ways. Mm-hmm. So this isn't a um, book you're going to pick up just to laugh or just to be scared. It's kind of a trip. Like, yes. I don't I don't condone um, illegal narcotics or anything, but it's kind of feels really abstract. Yeah. That's the best way. Do I you want to feel good, it. guys? Just a quick hit <laughs> of something. <laughs> Get some night veil in yeah. you. Yeah. If you're a fan of the podcast, I 
like 100% recommend checking this out. And of course, checking out the audiobook. And if you haven't tried either, I would rec- I would probably recommend at least listen to an episode or two of yes. the podcast. See how you like the, the type of storytelling it is. About that uh, fun little desert town. <laughs> so anyway, I would definitely say this is room temperature. It was very funny, though it had a lot of the like classic Nightville setups and punchlines. And it's a lot of great funny quotes from it. Uh, it was a good, enjoyable experience. But like I said, light on the plot. So if you are reading for that and you are not familiar with the world and the workings of it, maybe check out the podcast first for sure. <laughs> Anyway, that is Welcome to Night Vale by Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner. First time the faceless woman that lives in your house addressed you directly in the podcast, that was creepy as hell. It's funny. You know that's Mara Wilson, right? <laughs> yeah, Matilda. That brings us to my third and final pick of the evening, day, or afternoon, depending on when you're listening to it. I think it's a podcast first. I am going to recommend the seventh book in a series. Okay. It is... Zeburbia 7. Of course. Sisters of the Apocalypse. Couldn't do Grady Hendrix, so you had to do that. <sighs> bingo card done. Yep. That is bingo. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's Zeburbia 7, Sisters of the Apocalypse by Jake Bible. Again, anybody that's listened to me talk for longer than an hour or so has heard me talk with Jake Bible before. Um, he is an author that I kind of admire and kind of aspire to mold my own career around at least the, the path he took and um anyway so zeburbia i have talked about before i mentioned in our zombie episode it may sound odd that i'm recommending the seventh book in a series especially when truth be told i recommend the entire series for this topic but i figured i did want to repeat myself but seven specifically is um independent of the rest of the series in a way it's more of a spin-off um, and I think it's funnier than the other ones, especially if you're not into real dad humor, like like Jay Sanford is the main character of the main series. Uh, Zeburbia 7, Sisters of the Apocalypse, uh, follows Elsbeth, who is a main character within the series. Uh, she is a kind of badass assassin woman. She was brainwashed um, and turned into this, like deadly assassin with her and and a bunch of other other females her of the same age and sisters of the apocalypse takes place after the events of the original zeburbia series um jake actually didn't want it to be listed as zeburbia 7 he just wanted to be sisters of the apocalypse a zeburbia novel it was a publisher that made it part seven because you don't need to read the rest of them to um to follow it okay and elsbeth after becoming the the badass assassin, lost her memory in the original series, and you, she's introduced in the first book, um, where she's been living with this like cannibal, somewhat abusive father figure character. So she's really, to the point, really socially inept, and like has no filter in what she says. So I think as a character, she's funnier. And I think it's it's one of the better characters that Jake writes. So it's her and her sisters, well, I guess sorority sisters in a way, um, tracking down this uh, antagonist and hilarity ensues from there. But again, with comedy, the way I approach it, it's all about the main characters. And Elsbeth is a um, fantastic character to follow because she's so inarticulate to actually get a book inside her perspective. That was absolutely amazing for me after going through the original series. Um, but yeah, so it's really it's action packed, funny, and has zombies and gore. So 
that would be my final pick for dark comedic horror. And I will try to not try and fit Jake Bible in everywhere else for the rest of the, <laughs> of, at least for the next couple of episodes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this seemed like a good pick, though. So you had to. More, more so than the original series. Because like I said, I think Elsbeth is more of a character that um, the listeners of this podcast could probably... Uh, get on board with jace is more like me <laughs> than, than elspeth so i think it would be quite enjoyable um temperature rating if zombies are a thing that that worry you it's probably fridge but for most of us i would say it's another room temperature offering easy so yeah that was uh zebrubia 7 sisters of the apocalypse by jake bible <laughs> All right, so let's talk some chilling obsessions. Okay, I'm really excited to talk about mine. <laughs> it's okay. important, Devin. I got to go to the movie theater. <laughs> this doesn't happen a lot. So I finally, not finally, it just came out. I saw Us. <laughs> we know this is Jordan Peele's second film after Get Out, and I won't spoil anything, but like the basic plot is that it follows Adelaide and her family on vacation in Santa Cruz, California where they seem to be hunted by what seems to be their doppelgangers in red suits holding gold scissors. So that's all I'm going to give you plot-wise. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, A lot of it had kind of like home invasion slasher kind of aspects to it. Um, Speaking of horror comedy, I thought he did a really great job of blending the two and having, you know, moments of levity after moments of tension like you were talking about earlier he did a really good job of balancing that out with uh, the dad. I loved the dad. <laughs> he had all of these like dad jokes galore. It was just a lot of fun. Um, also, something that I thought was fun is that there is a Lost Boys reference um, in the beginning of the movie. This is not a spoiler at all, but it opens in 1986. And the first part is at the Santa Cruz boardwalk, which, as you know, in Lost Boys, they change it to Santa Carla. Uh, so it takes place at the boardwalk and you hear a character say like, oh, I hear they're filming by the carousel and they're looking for extras. And so that's just like a throwaway line that's in there. But it is referencing the fact that Lost Boys was being filmed like in the timeline of the movie around that time. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. It gave a lot to think about. Probably more than like I understood, to be honest. (laughs) I'll go read some thing pieces and get back to you on that. Uh, But I would say very enjoyable. And I'm glad I got to go see it. I have not gone to see us. I haven't seen a a movie in so long now in theater. Yeah. Hmm. I think my last one was overlord that was a long time ago that was like a few months i don't know i don't get to go to the movies a lot either so this was very exciting for me <laughs> how long has it been for you oh like nine years no i i get to go to the movies i just like i haven't gone to see a movie within a week of it being released yeah. like within its first week usually it's like it's been out for two months now everyone's done talking about it so it means now it's time for me to go see it Oh, and our theater just got upgraded to, like, those nice seats that, like, recline and have seat heaters. Uh, once again, jealous. I'm sorry. <laughs> so how about you, Devin? Right now, my chilling obsession is to find a way to go see us. Ooh, do it, do it. Oh. <laughs> no, uh, my chilling obsession is a little bit older. Okay. In fact, I'm bringing you back all the way to 2006. Wow. This is a documentary. I can't even remember that time. <laughs> Nye, not a documentary, a mockumentary. Ooh, um, I'd be interested. Go on. <laughs> so I'm talking about Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Steph, have you heard of this movie before? I haven't. Please go on. You have not? No. You need to watch this movie. Behind the Mask is a documentary where they, where the film crew is 
interviewing and doing a documentary on Leslie Vernon. Leslie Vernon is like a Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers type character. So they do a documentary going over his prep work and, oh, his his strategy and all this stuff. of You got to do this so that they do this. Like literally laying it all out and getting ready for this um, basically slaughter that's going to happen later on in the movie. And what happens is about halfway through, the people making the documentary start feeling really bad and guilty. So they try to like talk him out of it. They try to stop him, like, man, like, you know, shouldn't, this isn't right, kind of thing. And they start getting this, like, um, moral crisis. So, in the end, they end up kind of playing a role in the events of the evening where Leslie, you know, dons his mask, his, not a hockey mask, but his knockoff hockey mask. And he's then starts stalking the, the kids that he was planning on killing. Um, but then the film crew is kind of, there in the way as well so like it becomes kind of a horror movie at the end like friday the 13th because you have leslie vernon who is killing everybody and stalking everybody but the first half of it was the film crew talking to him about how he does it and his method and his plans and all this stuff uh it's i haven't seen it in a long time so i'm not sure if i screwed up details on on the plot but that's the gist of it and i remember this being hilarious back in the day watching it um, it has cameos and just acting roles by um, Kane Hodder, who okay. is the primo, yeah. for, uh, Jason Voorhees. Um, Zelda Rubenstein, uh, she's the girl from Poltergeist, the uh, older woman, the psychic kind of uh, uh, mentor. And Robert England. <laughs> so it's got, it's got a nice um, pedigree here of, of horror stars endorsing the film. But yeah, it was awesome. It was hilarious. It has that horror aspect in the second half of it, the third act. Um, I'm not going to spoil the ending of it. And yeah, I might actually go back and rewatch this now after talking about it with you. <laughs> I love it. I can't believe I haven't then. heard of this. This sounds like something I would really like. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Without a question. It's like Blair Witch meets... Um, this is Spinal Tap meets <laughs> J- Friday the Thirteenth. Nice, like <laughs> good pitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so it is now April, and we have picked our book for the Books in the Freezer Book Club. We actually left it up to a vote on Patreon, uh, so our five dollar Patreon supporters voted and picked. Ooh, ooh, who won? Who won? Who won? So. Lost Highways. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I voted for that. Yay. So yeah. Lost Highways 1. This is an anthology. Um, hold on. I had all the information here. So it, the full title is Lost Highways, Dark Fictions from the Road, edited by D. Alexander Ward. So these seems like road trip horror. What Stoker is it up for? Uh, anthology. Yeah, this is a nominee for Anthology, and I believe at least one of the stories in here is up for individual short story. But, oh man, looking at this author list, I'm really excited. It's got a lot of podcast favorites. It's got Christy Demeester. It's got Josh Mallerman. It's got Jonathan Jans. It's got an introduction by Brian Keene. It's got just a lot. It's got a story by Joe Lansdale. So it looks like a pretty stacked <laughs> author contributor list. Um, so we will be discussing it. I broke it up into different sections in our Goodreads group so we can discuss different stories uh, in chunks. And we actually might be joined by 
by one of the ladies of the fright from the ladies of the fright podcast to come in and discuss it with us so we love to go over and read what your comments are while we're reading these books it's a great place to have discussions also what i've really loved is people have started having their own discussions on the goodreads group like asking for read-alikes and stuff and just having the whole community come together and find stuff so come hang out with us in the goodreads group that's the best part about the whole book club thing is the fact that it's we're starting to really foster a good community around around the reads around just the podcast itself and yeah it's very welcoming um everybody seems to be enjoying themselves it costs you absolutely nothing to come on in and just be a part of it. Mm-hmm. We just we just enjoy having you there. Oh, definitely. So yeah, we hope to see you there for April for our Books in the Freezer book club pick. <laughs> Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer. You can send us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes are at booksinthefreezer.com. We are on Patreon as books in the freezer um we mentioned last episode we have you know a few different levels we have like one three and five dollar levels um if you want to support us of course you don't have to you can show your support for the podcast in other ways like leaving us a review dropping a few good words about us about this podcast that you're enjoying hopefully so go leave us a review on apple podcasts it makes our day or even just sharing us on social media you know sharing on twitter what you're listening to or on instagram and tagging us we do love to see that you are listening to and enjoying the podcast and even if you're not doing the book club with us you can still come over to goodreads the books in the freezer goodreads group and just chat in general yeah to any other other listeners, to myself or Steph, um, Rachel's around as well, our previous host. So, I mean, there's there's all kinds of stuff going on over there. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-H-E-N-O-N. Or on Instagram at That's What She Read. That's That's with two A's. Or on YouTube as Just That's What She Read. And I'm Devin. You can find me on Twitter at Reads. Or you can find me uh, streaming horror games on Twitch at Indie Insomniac. So join us next time for Books in the Freezer. Ooh.